It's been a minute. We waited, I think it's been like two weeks now since we uh, did our WGI recap. Yeah, life happens, busy, uh, just letting all the YouTube videos and stuff roll in anyway, and yeah, kind of Robert Let Robert Martinez get all of his editing done before we try to jump into anything. Man's Thank everywhere. God for those dudes, for real though, for hooking all these kids up with quality videos of their of their stuff and to remember their season. I think that's killer. Him and George and Evan Guerra, Drumline AV, so shout out to those dudes. Yep, doing some great work, but we're not going to banter too much before we jump into today's amazing guest. Welcome everyone to the Aged Out Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Fantini, and with me as always is... Evan Worrell. And before we get going, make sure you head over to the YouTube channel if you're listening on podcast services. Check out all the content over there. Head to LoneStarPercussion.com. Use the discount code AGEDOUT. Save yourself $10 on any order of $50 or more. Check us out on social media so you never miss an update. And all right, let's get into today's guest. I don't think I left any of the important stuff out there. Evan, take it away. Now, I actually have used that Lone Star Percussion code uh, a couple times while ordering his uh, his sticks from Lone Star. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, without any further ado, uh, thanks for joining us, Tim. What's up, man? Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I think everybody will see the name in the in the description. So, Tim Fairbanks with us. This one's probably long overdue for how many hours we've all spent together in a room and just how well we know each other. But the timing of it, I will say, feels very right. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about it. Tim has some some creative, inter- interesting theories and ideas uh, that he wanted to bounce off of us. But first of all, man, take us a little bit through just kind of your bio of getting in the activity, jumping in, rising up the ranks, and so on. Sure thing. Um, first, like I said, thanks for having me. I think what you guys are doing is awesome. I think uh, the number of these types of media outlets that are happening right now is very cool. Um, I know that that's not, uh, not everybody thinks that. I think there's a lot of people that think that people should just talk if they're well qualified. But the idea that talking about our actual activity, um, it shouldn't be a secret, right? Thousands and thousands of people enjoy it every year and everybody's talking about it anyway. I think you, you bringing people into kind of peel back the onion on DCI, WGI, all the different marching arts, I think is a very cool thing. Um, so I just wanted to give you guys a shout out for that. Um, and then I'll just go quick through my background. Not super exciting, so I'll, I'll give you the bullet points. Um, and I'm, I'm a little old in the tooth compared to some of you guys. So um, the numbers get pretty low when you start talking about when I started. Um, but I, I did march with the Glassman Drum and Bugle Corps, RIP, um, in 1991, 92, and 93. Um, I played cymbals there my first year. Um, I learned enough about cymbals that year to know that I didn't want to play cymbals anymore. Um, <laughs> and then played snare drum in 92 and 93. In the meantime, went to Michigan State, realized what else was out there. They had a lot of, lot of talent in Michigan State. Well, they always do, but early 90s, it was, it was kind of uh, insane up there with drum corps talent. Um, my sophomore year, I think there was, 10 snares and every one of them had just marched to the top full drum corps. Wow. Um, so did that. And then in the meantime, went to Phantom Regiment, marched there in 1994. And then I was the section leader and center snare in 95 and 96. Um, fortunate enough to age out with the championship. Um, one of the more was, iconic Phantom Regiment shows ever. Defiant Heart. Yep. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a fun one. And, interesting you know we talk a lot about the process and how the seasons go and 
that one everybody looked back on as this kind of glory year. But uh, marching the other years, especially 95 and 96, nothing really felt any different. Um, I mean, we just worked. Bettis was there and Prosper was there in 95. We just worked our asses off all summer long. And in one of the years, we got fifth. And in one of the years, we got first. But the process was the same either way. So, like, if you think back to the actual experience, the last minute of the season then informed the next 25 years of that show's legacy. Um, but I've always thought that um, 95, we actually were a, a, maybe a better drum line and worked just as hard. Um, so, aged out in 96, went back and taught a little bit in 97. Um, met Jody, my wife, uh, moved down here to Centerville and then started teaching at Centerville's drum line in 1997, basically as soon as I got here. Um, they hired me to uh, teach the horn line visual, which is kind of a Centerville joke because at the time, Centerville's drum line was very uh, uh, sucky. I don't know how to say it. They were, they were just awful. Less experienced. Around those years, yes, less experienced. Um, but they were just real bad, and they didn't have any, any kind of knowledge of drum corps or anything like that. And th their stick was that they were like a, a drum set on the field. And in some years, like in the early, early 90s, it was pretty cool. Um, by the time the late 90s hit, it was just lame. Um, so I, I got hired to teach the horn line, and Jody had told Wayne, Mark Worth, who was our boss at the time, he's like, well, you know, he knows a little bit about drums, too, because, you know, <laughs> they already had a drum guy, like one dude to run the drum line. And, like, as soon as I showed up, I remember, I'll never forget that day, but they had, like, their crab step, they had the wrong feet behind, and they're, they oh, had no. plastic heads, like, coated plastic heads on their snare drums Oof. so that you could hear the brushes. And I was like, bro, I, like, I need to help these kids immediately. <laughs> um, so then uh, I did. By that winter, I was the director, and we started an indoor line in that uh, spring of 98. Um, I had done a couple indoor lines before that myself up in uh, when I was at Michigan State. Did the Weeders and Spirit of Ontario and then the Phantom Regiment uh, in 95, 96, and 97, and then started my own group in 98. So... And we came out in open class. We probably shouldn't have, um, but my my wife did the color guard, and they were in open class. So I was like, all right, well, I guess we're in open class too. Um, probably should have definitely been an A to start, but we just went for it. Um, just taught really aggressively. The staff was me, Noah Bellamy, Kevin Namaki, Devin Namaki, and Andy Scheibel. Um, and we were all, like, young and fresh and just ready to go for it. Um, and so then stayed at Centerville. I've been there. This is my 25th year there. Um, in the meantime, I've done a lot of other things. have been at Rhythm X for 20 years. Um, did some different drum corps throughout my time. Um, I worked with the Blue Coats for three years. Uh, well, four years. Did the drill there for three years. Blue Stars for a number of years. And I'm at the Crossland right now. Um, I've done a lot of international judging and worked with a couple of international groups. Uh, really, really heavily involved in WGI in general, uh, in the company side of things, not just having groups, but I really care a lot about the activity. It gave me a lot, so I like to give back to it. Does your mom still work at WGI? Did you just bring my mom up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your mom doing, Evan? Uh, nurse. She's, she's camping in North Carolina right now with my dad. 
But I'm pretty sure that your mom sold uh, my parents' WGI tickets multiple times. So, yeah, she does. She she's awesome, and she works at the at the WGI office, does tickets, and she's obviously a proud mom. But I've I've had to train her over the years to not pick up the phone and say, you know, WGI, this is Tim's mom. How can I help you? Um, <laughs> but people usually make the connection. She's, she's met a lot of really nice people. People like your parents that she's sold tickets to over the years. So that's a that's a cool thing. Heck yeah, Team Fairbanks. Mom, Jody, yep. Tim. Yep. Hold Carter, it down. Logan. Carter, Logan. Yeah, all of them. Yep. Through the ranks, man. Band family. Love it. Um, so, did Michigan State, were they involved in like PASIC and stuff at the time too? Okay. Yep. Yeah, that was late 90s, like 90, or early 90s, 90, 91, 92, 93. It was like North Texas. UK, Moorhead, Michigan State were always the big basic lines. Um, and we were good. I mean, it was it was a precursor to WGI, but we did drill. And it was mostly just about how many beats we could fit into six minutes um, and take the smallest step sizes we could. Had our band uniforms <laughs> rocking the whole time. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was cool. Being Moorhead guys, we've seen a handful of those old basic lines, and they definitely could drum. Some really good yeah. drumming going on in the 90s in those lines. Yeah, I always envied the drills. Like, man, you guys just gotta stand there and ram. No. That's what's up. <laughs> That's what it yeah, should for be. Sure. And, and I got the fortunate uh, endeavor of being taught by a number of really great people in Michigan State. Chris Thompson was my first teacher there. He did Madison in the '80s, like '88 Madison kind Ooh, of. That's one of my favorite shows. Time. Um, and then Dave Mace uh, was from the Cadets. He he was awesome. He really taught me a lot. Um, and he kind of has, has a cool story. I don't know if he's ever going to listen to this or not. If he, if he does, what's up, Dave? But he marched two years of cadets, and he marched 87 and 90 only. So he only marched drum corps twice and has two perfect drum scores, <sighs> which is, like, unheard of. It's got to be the only <laughs> person in history. I would, I would think so. So, yeah, yeah, Michigan State definitely helped me learn a lot about what else is out there and made, made the connection to Phantom Regiment. Yeah, that 1988 um, Legacy Years DCI DVD is one of the first two that I owned because I love that Malaguena show so much. We played that show, actually. We played the Malaguena show at a football game. I think it was the Penn State game maybe one year. And CT just, or Chris Thompson, just handed us the charts. It was like, still said Madison at the top of them, and they were all handwritten. And we like read them down, and he was like, man, I wish I'd have had you guys in 88. <laughs> Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Um, so obviously that's a pretty significant laundry list of accolades and accomplishments uh, through your career that we just we, we drove through. But um, the purpose with that was to approach the next subject, which you had mentioned to me and I found super fascinating, uh, which is you have this theory about a lot of these WGI groups that do really well in today's... Uh, current setting or scores whatever you want to call it today's system but there are groups that have been around for decades a couple decades and you have a pretty interesting theory as to like kind of how they are the way they are why they are the way they are uh and it's all grouped around a book that you recommended that mike and i read which i did read almost all of i still have like three chapters left so i will admit that i haven't finished it yet but i'll let you kind of take it from there yeah, sure. Um, I get a lot about uh, like the top five area of WGI independent world and how it's kind of um, 
it's a really difficult nut to crack into. And really the only person to do it in the last 12 years or so is Broken City. Uh, but they're not, I don't consider them to be a new group necessarily because their designers aren't new. Uh, Mike Jackson's been around since the, the mid nineties. Um, and the, the book that I recommended is called the outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I had, I had read it years ago and was really interested about these little pockets and demographics of people. And there's three of them that he talks about in the book. One is software developers like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Bill Joy that does uh, Sun. Um, and that created, all three created of them, Java. Yep. Yeah, it was, he's a pretty talented dude. Um, but the three of them, they were all born within like three years of each other and uh, have gone on to be super successful. And one of the reasons is they were at the time that they started coding, um, they had just graduated from college. They had access to the 10,000 hours. They had access to coding machines and open labs that a lot of people didn't have. Um, so they were able to make a lot of mistakes without a lot of risk. And they didn't already have jobs. So like the people that were born five years before them, they were already at IBM and they already like had a solid job. So they weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. They weren't trying to do anything new. They were just trying to, you know, lay down a full-time job. Um, and the same thing happened after the depression with a whole bunch of Jewish lawyers that had the same kind of demographic that lasted for years where that's this pocket of people um, that made it out of the depression due to a lot of factors. Read the book. Um, yeah. But I, I think that, uh, a really interesting thing, and I had texted a bunch of these guys this week, um, at the risk of using the term like top designer, I do think that there are a lot of people that stay in that realm up at the, up at the uh, you know, top five of independent world that have been doing this for a long time. And I, I, I believe that a lot of us, and I, these are the people I include in this list, is me and Mike Jackson and Shane Gwaltney, Jim Wunderlich and Sean Vega. So there was other dudes that came before us, like a Jay Webb or a Dave Marvin, Ward Durrett, people that were like pioneers of the activity. They had groups early on, which, you know, we stand on the shoulders of those kind of people. But there's this little pocket of people right around the late 90s that got a high school gig, whether it was Choctahatchee or Centerville or Mission Viejo. Um, and then eventually, once the independent thing started to catch up to Scholastic, because in those days, Scholastic was better than independent. It just, it just was. That also entered into an independent group. And at that time, like I remember going to championships and we would be in the tunnel. Dartmouth would be in front of us and Mission Viejo would be behind us. And there was no flow marching. There was no fan network. There was no YouTube. You just like did your thing and then people from all over the United States showed up and then you got to watch and you're like, okay, well, what's new this year is, can you do electronics now? Are we using digitally screen printed floors? I've never seen the pit in that configuration. They have their snares doing what? Like we got to see all that stuff. And at the time we were just basically swinging for the fences and trying to figure out something cool to do because the rules hadn't been made yet. So like by the mid 2000s, there was a bunch of rules in drumline. You can't do this. You can't do that. This is going to sound bad if you do this. 
And and I think that the guys that were doing it in the late 90s, early 2000s, got the benefit of trying to actually set those rules. And because of that, I, that's where I consider our 10,000 hours of experience. Um, then we got it again over the next 20 years. We got, well, more than 10,000 of hours. But our initial approach of getting in there and trying new things and not looking at somebody else and saying, I want to do that and follow those rules, I think gave us some, some sort of weird separation that allows for the fact that Shane is still at Mystique and they're a top five group. Mike is at Broken City and they're a top five group. I'm at Rhythm X, right? Like, it's just, it's just always been kind of interesting. And then there was a new generation of people like the Mapes and Grom and Kevin Shaw and Andrew and all those dudes that came about 10 years later that they got to learn from all of our mistakes. Um, and, and I find that they're all really super talented, but also play by the rules a little bit more. Because when they came into the activity, there had been rules set up already. So that, that's my Malcolm Gladwell theory. So you I thought guys, one. Go ahead, Mike. You guys got to experiment, like you said, those <clears throat> software designers did, or those programmers. You got to experiment and play around and take risks when there really wasn't any blowback or punishment from taking those risks. So you got to experiment, put in work, put in hours, and then when the time came to where WGI became what it was, the timing was right. You already had the work put in to then just take that, start a group, insert yourself into a group that already existed and run with it. You already played around with what would work, what wouldn't work. So that's interesting. I yeah, found the, the risk, the risk factor that you talk about is really important because at the time, like right now to make independent world finals, there's 29 groups, right? Then there was like six or seven. Like I, I remember when rhythm X came out and it was like, we could do whatever we wanted and we were still going to make finals. Like, Oh, dang it, we were seventh, and then all of a sudden we were third, and then haven't looked back since then. But at the beginning, they're like a group right now, to, and this is why I, I like this series, because I, I really spend a lot of time with WGI, I love it, um, but I consider myself to be very lucky. The time that I got into WGI, there was about five or six things that all fell into place for me to get into the positions that I did that have led to me to be able to make a career out of it. And if I was starting today, tomorrow, as a 22-year-old age out, it would be so hard. I mean, almost insurmountably hard. And uh, I just consider myself very lucky. Found that one of the, the neatest parallels in the Malcolm Gladwell book um, to Indoor was when they were talking about the Beatles. And obviously, the Beatles are a performing group. And it referenced the 10,000 hours. And... The Beatles had a unique opportunity. I think they said they were going back and forth to Germany, um, the Red Light District maybe, and they would just play at these bars where they would play sets for like six, seven, eight hours at a time, and they just got really good at performing. I mean, if you if you play live that many times, you're going to get better by just sheer volume. And at one point, I think they said that they did 1,200 performances in a 10-year span and just like adding into those 10,000 hours in it also attributed the white album they created it i think about 8 to 9 years into their i guess journey as a group and they, so they were saying like really it didn't it didn't all happen right away but like it took them like 8 or 9 years to probably make their their best work 
what people some people would regard. And so that's like almost a decade with thousands and thousands of hours of just like experimenting. And there was no risk really for them. I mean, they were just getting to play gigs and go and go and go and figure a lot of stuff out. To where then you see them 10 years later and they're just like being on stage like this is just like walking down the street. Everybody always thinks and sees the end product. They don't really ever think about like what had to come before it. It's like you can look at the drum corps season kind of in the same vein. Why are they so good by the end? Because they perform more than other groups in other avenues of the activity in a short period of time and they just get the hours in. That's why they're so good. And you look in August and go, everybody forgets June or May when you're in August at the end and it's like they put in hours and just at the end of the day, time time spent goes a long way. Yeah, and one of the things that I, those early years that we were all figuring out together uh, as competitors was the visual part of it. Because um, I like I'm a snare drummer. That's that's my my roots. That's what I did. That's what I always thought I would always be. Um, and I do. I still love teaching percussion. Um, but in those early 2000s, um, like my first show that I did at Centerville, it was like, okay, well, write some drill figure out how to figure out how to do this real fast and there wasn't like hire this guy to do the drill and then bring in the choreo person and then have this person write the beat and then this person does sound design it was like okay well Noah's gonna write some stuff on the keyboards and then i'm gonna do everything else because we've got 500 bucks total so we were figuring out what visual even meant you know in those some of those years like when north glenn was coming out they were doing the real theatric version um and some people were more dancey and some people were more, you know, traditional college marching bandy. And everybody's trying to figure out what visual looks like in WGI, um, where at this point, it's pretty much figured out. Like, we know what it looks like. And there, there's some groups that have their own identities. But at that time, it was, it was you know, every man for themselves as far as what visual was like, um, which is, is always funny, like, because I'm often known as a, a visual guy. You know, that's one of my main jobs at many of the groups that I teach. Um, but I, I, I like, I remember this happened at the Bluecoats one year. I was walking by, like, the snare line, and, and I'm their drill writer, right? This guy is like, yeah, that guy writes the drill. Okay, cool. And I, like, walk by, and I commented I was left-hand interbeats aren't playing in the center of the drum. And he was like, oh, oh, oh okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> This guy actually knows what he's talking about. So, dude, that's awesome. Uh, in a lot of those success stories, it was people who were obviously talented and wanted to learn and wanted to grow. I mean, the Bill Gates thing—he was just eat up. Like in those people that you mentioned, like you and Shane and Jim and Sean Vega and Mike Jackson. Obviously, there is talent and an understanding to like grow yourself and the knowledge you have within the activity. But that Bill Gates thing, it was like the right place at the right time. They said that he went to a school that had a sharing terminal. Yeah, he had a love for coding, but he just happened to be in a place that had a terminal where he could do it. And it wasn't just like super laborious. It was actually fun and enjoyable. Um, yeah. And so and like the, you mentioned... One of the things... I'm one of the, sorry. Uh, one of the things about Independent World right now, we we're talking about Broken City and how they were able to break into that top five right away. Um, and I, I think that obviously Kevin Shaw is a brilliant arranger, but I think that Mike Jackson hit his early influences of doing things at mission that were 
really, really unorthodox or creative or innovative that he was able to come out, you know, 20 years later and be like, all right, yep, I'm bringing out an independent group and I'm going to change the way that it looks. I'm not going to look like anybody else. And Broken City doesn't look like anybody else. Well, now they do because everybody else looks like that. I was like getting that. ready to say it. Emulate. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, but I think because he's one of those outliers that he was able to swing in and just come in into the top five, which is you know nearly impossible. Did he, well, did he also run Orange County Independent before, though? Wasn't that a thing? Yeah, yeah, it was like OCI. Um, oh, I don't know that I don't know all the details, but I think that that was like a gig for them. Oh, okay. And then they like rebranded it and they were like, okay, this is our thing now. And now it's broken city. And they, and, and then, you know, took a big jump up more his vision of what he wanted to do with yeah. it. For sure. I think you'd have to check with those guys, but I'm pretty sure that's the right story. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate the the book recommendation. I still have a few chapters left to go just to finish it. Um, some of the stuff towards the end is a little more heavy. <laughs> Talk about like <laughs> yeah. plane, plane crashes and stuff. There was there was one thing that I, while reading it, I'm also a few chapters from the end, but the part where they examined um, that scientist that followed a bunch of like IQ geniuses around through like their developmental years and kind of kept tabs on where they ended up. So basically, in a nutshell, to summarize this, yeah, this researcher identified a bunch of geniuses with an IQ above a certain level, all ranging, all ranges above that level, super high, right at the threshold, whatever. He wanted to see this IQ have that much of an impact on the success of the person. Does it influence it that much? Is it that much of a leg up? And what he found was at a point, there was a threshold basically where if the IQ was at least this high, you had an increased chance of success, whether it's Nobel Prizes, good job, master's degree, whatever, however you want to quantify that. But how far above the threshold you were really didn't impact it that much. And the first thing that jumped out to me when I read that was I've always looked at playing in a drum line kind of, I kind of related it to that. Take a snare line, for example. There's different skill sets involved in being in a snare line. You have to have a certain level of individual playing ability. You have to have listening ability. You have to be able to just be aware of your surroundings, all that kind of stuff, marching ability. And there's different levels of playing ability individually when you look go down the line of a snare line. Some people, you've always heard the term, I'm a line player. I'm not an amazing individual player, but I can fit into a sound, play in time with people around me, play clean. Well, that's that threshold. You've got to have a certain amount of playing ability to be a certain level of line player. But there's always I've heard about tons of people where they're an individual player, like their IQ, for example, if you want to re- use that analogy, is like 200, where the threshold's 140 but they're not that great of line players. That would equate to those geniuses that had a 200 IQ that weren't super successful on that setting. I don't know. My brain kind of just put those two things together, if that made sense, right when I read it. I think the the broader point was like, it helps to be smart, but like you don't have to be the smartest. Uh, exactly. It helps to be talented, but you don't have to be the most talented. Um, but so you, you guys kind of got in, I would say, right place right time, right ambition, right knowledge. Like it was just like, it was a perfect storm of independent worlds kind of taking a step away from like the college age kids wanting to compete in PASIC and it's kind of merging into WGI and you guys are like hitting this at the money point. Um, Similar to what it was talking about, like those 
Great Depression people, you mentioned like if you were too old, you were already settled in a job. And if you're too young, you just didn't quite have the knowledge to start out. So that was really a sweet spot. And I think that if there were some of those other groups that probably like Black Knights or something that were still around, they'd probably be at the top just because of when that all happened. Um, were they out of Colorado too, though? Black Knights? No, they were out of California, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that Mike Jackson actually did that line. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that would make sense. And Kayshaw was in that line. I'm I'm 90% sure that Kayshaw played snare drum in the Black Knights. The year that they were, I think they were like second and second, or tied, they tied with somebody. It was the okay. X year. It was, the okay. one, it was like their one really knockout year. I'm pretty sure that Mike taught and that Kevin Shaw was in that actual snare line. You can fact check me afterwards. Well, yeah, well, somebody, somebody fact check us. Uh, I have to reach out to Kevin. I guess over the years, too, with all of your collection of knowledge and trials and tribulations and failures, it would certainly allow you in the design process to preemptively, I guess, eliminate things that you just know, like, this is something we probably can do. This is something we can try, and we probably have a certain amount of weeks to really give it a shot before we exit. What's that like? And I know that we have firsthand experience with the design process, even though it's probably changed since then. But when you guys are sitting down to design a show for Rhythm X or this year, and I think Josh alluded on a, another podcast that it kind of started with the music maybe more this year. Yeah, what are you guys can... like? What are you guys like driving home? Like, all right, here's the start. How do we get from this? This we have this idea. This idea, like connect the dots. Yeah, well, there's a lot of great quotes about the like the design process. I, I'm, I think it was Michelangelo was talking about David, and you know that he didn't. He just kept tipping away at the marble until the angel appeared. Th things like that, where we often bite off a big chunk of something, whether it's a concept like the, the show this year. Actually, um, if you want to know, you want, are you want me to get nitty gritty a little bit? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So it started during COVID with um, I wanted some way to um, change the way the floor looked in a second. So I wanted to change the color of the floor and just like right away, but would not use TVs or lights, right? I think that's lame. Um, so I found, um, I found it was like full in like lockdown mode at Lowe's, these retractable sunshades, they were like eight foot by four foot, but they were like $95. And for some reason they were like clearanced out at like 14 bucks. So I, I like drove to every Lowe's within a hundred miles and bought as many of them as I could. Um, didn't know what I was going to use them for yet. Didn't even know if there would ever be a Rhythm X again at this point because everything was shut down. Um, but the, those retractable blinds and being able to change what the floor looked like that was that was the first part of the show um and then we put it in a box which was based on um new york like if you're in new york on broadway and you're training to be a, a trained actor you often do a thing called black box theater which is just you in a very small room uh with a very small audience and it's black behind you and they call it black box theater so the, the shadow boxes of being able to retract and put curtains in front of it where the magic of seeing people leave the floor. Like if we've got a whole bunch of these boxes that you could go in, but what comes out of the curtain is something different um, was something that I was really inspired by. 
Um, and then, then the Nirvana came later. Uh, and then we kind of melded those two ideas together. Uh, and Andrew found a bunch of really cool music. It, you know, obviously didn't get quite enough credit in some of the captions for the cool music that, that there was because we also played some rock tunes, which is against the rules. But um, <laughs> I, I think that the Nirvana stuff and then getting into Kurt Cobain and his life and all the paintings and all that stuff, that was that was when the show really took, you know, it came to life. Rhythm X, the legends of rock. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think a lot of the nuance of shows... It, it would get lost on that casual fan for sure, unless you just sit and watch the show multiple times in a row, which I think is the goal when you're designing a show is that you do have a show that, one, serves the purpose of a great read on the first run, and two, is something that people want to go back and listen to. And there's a few of the shows this year, obviously Rhythm XPM 1, that I just still find myself, here we are now. Like, you just come back to it. And obviously, it's a Nirvana song, but if you hear that on the radio, now I have this different association of the song. Uh, yeah, that I that have lyric a... especially is a yeah. Rhythm X kind of... Uh, it, it, it's our question to the audience and to the judges um, because we're in a competitive activity, but we're also trying to create this piece of art using percussion and using people. Um, so, like, if, do you want to just be entertaining? Do you just want to be musical? Do you, like, if you gave the audience what they wanted, there would be people in big spinning drum machine things that roll all <laughs> over the floor the whole time and a trapeze artist and all kinds of shit that would be very entertaining, but it, not, it wouldn't necessarily get the points. So just like Kurt Cobain struggled with, uh, you know, I know that the audience wants me to play these two chords over and over again, but I feel like I could do a lot more than that. Um, we, I think a lot of groups struggle with the balance between being the, the like the people's champion. Like this, this is the show that is going to make a kid want to be an in, indoor drumline, or is this the show that's engineered to get the most points? So in Rhythm X generally, uh, I think if you look historically, the only times where we've really missed is when we've tried to really engineer and make sure we get points. Because then we lose, we kind of lose our identity a little bit. And and I I made a Facebook post about this after WGI because I I have probably like six or seven second place shows. Second place shows, that I sold out. Favorite, yeah. Like you're gonna you're gonna tell me that inspired and all the world's a stage and in perspective and art shaped box, like they didn't win. Okay, that's cool. But I know the number of people that have come up to me and said, like, yo, that changed my life, or I wanted to do drumline because I saw that show. Um, I'd rather, I'd always rather be that group. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 100%. And there was one thing, too. I always remember this quote that you said. Uh, I don't remember what year it was in the three years that I was there. But you always told us, like, I will not make you wear something that I wouldn't wear myself. And that sort of introspection just is like, all right. It created a a pretty good level of trust with like they're thinking about how we're gonna feel when we're out there. Um and I'm sure like if yeah. I went down the moment of the opening moment of the show where the snares like the curtain comes up and they're just there 
and there's the head nod. Like I would envision myself like that's something like I would want to do. Like I would yep. want to experience that from a performal performer's uh, vantage point. Like the curtain comes up, you just give that like subtle like kind of smirk to the audience, and the crowd just loses their shit. <laughs> yeah, that's always been our our plan. And Tim and Andrew and I have been together for a long time now since well friends for a long time at Rhythm X, but as a design team since '08. And our theories are that we. A, we're not trying to win. We're trying to be the best thing that's ever been. If we're the best thing that's ever been, it may or it may not win, but that's the goal first, right? And then whatever, we're doing this to provide an opportunity for the students, for the cast, for the members that we can't do, right? There's an age-out rule for good reasons, and we can't do this activity anymore. So why would we want to provide something for the students that isn't fucking cool? Like, we want them to get the experience of seeing that crowd on their feet, and we that's how we design. So I know a lot of groups will bring in, you know, like like I said, like bring in the dance person, and Tim and Tim and I are like, Do you, would you want to take your drum off and dance for a minute and a half of the show? We're like, no. So we'll do something cooler or different or, I don't know, everybody's got their own style and their own influences, but we like we like to really care about what the members actually want to do and get to do by, by coming to Rhythm X. That That's... also then means that we get better players because their friends are like, yo, at Rhythm X, it's really cool there, and they don't make us do stupid shit. It's so, funny you bring up... All right, yeah. It's funny yeah. you bring up taking the drums off and doing basically dance work for a minute and a half of your show because... Evan and I harped on this as we did reaction videos, as we watched all the shows come out this season. At one point, him and I were just, I think we were watching a regional at his house, and we just looked at each other and went, is, is this just a thing now that every group has to all put their drums down and do a bunch of guard work, guard body work, basically, for like a minute of the show? It's like, that. It's just doesn't, it doesn't work out well, usually, because we don't have the dance training that all these it. guard members have to make it look really good and you can't give us the training in a few weekends leading up to the shows like it's just we don't have the body control we haven't been doing it since we're 14 years old 13 years old and it just seems forced and it's just something that really stuck out to both of us it was just ironic that you brought that up and yeah and it's true and the reason that that happens is because there's a couple of really good groups that have done that at a very high level and groups that are below that look at it, look at it and see, oh, well, this group is getting really good scores and visual, and they took their drums off and danced for a long time. So we, we should or must have to do that also. Yeah, yep. and I think there's a big difference, too. Like, I know for sure there's a couple groups out there with people on staff that are, like, legit dancers. Like, that's what they do. They teach yep. dance. They have dance studios. Uh, so they understand that. And I think there's a big gap between that and just bringing in someone who's good at color guard. Even though, like, you can satisfy that, it's just, it's not quite the same. Like, there's a different level of training and nuance behind that. But one thing you mentioned just a second ago, too, is, like, it allows you to get better performers doing things like that that want to do. And obviously, the groups that have been around for a long time in... Broken City is kind of an anomaly. Uh, Impulse is new to the game, but California is just littered with, obviously, talent, and those dudes know what they're doing out there. But RCC, MCM, you guys, 
were able to enter into this game and establish yourself and take a lot of risks and ultimately figure out a lot of things. And now we're continuously successful over and over and over and over again. And I think one of the challenges for a group that's trying to break into that top five is that they just across the spectrum, like they might have a really, really great section, but across the entire ensemble, they're probably just not drawing the same talent. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, Blue Devils are drawing talent every year. It is what it is. Santa Clara yeah, Vang is drawing talent. I have another theory about that. Okay. You know, I want to hear another theory. Sure. Oh, yeah. So uh, this is about, um, I don't know if you guys ever watched Formula One. Mm-hmm. I do watch a lot of Formula yeah. One. One of my, actually, one of my bucket lists is to go to a Formula One race at like Monaco or Spa or something like that. All right, well, let me know because I'll go too. Yeah. Um, but... It's actually cheaper than going to a race here in the States. Really? Yeah, yeah you can get a three-day I, pass I at Monaco really... for 1500 bucks, room, room included. All right, well, let's do that after this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, w- I had never really been interested into it in, until a couple years ago when the Netflix special came out. And the fact that they have 20 cars, 10 teams, right? And the, the drivers are a differentiator, right? But one of the things that they said in one of the episodes that really struck with me was that, like, well, Mercedes has a better car. Mercedes's car is just a better car. And so they always, Lewis Hamilton's going to be up near the top no matter what because their car is better. And they have a better design team, the better engineers, they've got a better pit crew, all those things. But if your car is just flat out better than the Haas team or McLaren or whoever, it, there'll be some variation, but you're eventually going to rise to the top. And that's how I feel that the top five is. Like if I, if, if I had to say what Pulse's talent is or Broken City Rhythm Max, their, their talent level, it's a Ferrari, it's a McLaren, it's a Mercedes, right? And so when we're given the best car, which I, I wouldn't say we're given it, we recruit our asses off to make sure that we have the best car. But when your kids can do the, the hardest stuff in the world as designers, you don't have to bash your head about like, well, I want to do this thing, but the kids aren't going to be able to do it. So that's, that's one of the biggest things. People will be like, well, why aren't people breaking into that? It's like, well, you got to get a better car. Clarity. And, and when you have a better car, it's easier to recruit the better drivers. It just yep. is what it is. Like, People who are in Williams and Haas and Alpha Tower and stuff, they want to move up the ladder. So they're like, all right, who has proven success and is going to give me the best opportunity to compete at the highest level? It's like, well, it's these teams. So I'm going to go try out. I'm going to put my name in the hat. And, yeah, and Alpha Tower is an interesting one. Isn't that Red Bull's second team? Yeah, it's basically their uh, their feeder <laughs> their feeder team. So that, that's Powell, right? Like, Powell's not going to beat Paul. <laughs> No, they so, try out they the same place, don't they? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, Alpha Tauri is using the, the Honda engines for the same thing Red Bull's using. And so, like, if Pierre Gasly is having, like, a great year, they're like, mm, we're going to look at him and putting up, bumping him up to the, the, the 18. And yeah. I would I would add on to that, that these top five groups that usually have the highest level of clarity every year, it's like you guys can also afford to a little bit at the top to take more risks. Because even if you miss a little bit, 
your clarity, you know, the drum core coffee shop guys were just asking us about this. Your clarity is still going to be higher because the car is just better than the other groups. Even if your show design risks miss a little bit, you're still going to finish well in the top five because you're playing, you're performing just that much better still. And, and every time I'm watching a regional, it's the same thing. It gets to the first group and it's usually in that top five and it's a marked sound difference. The members move across the floor better. The battery blend is better. The front ensemble blend is better. Just the front to back, the connection between the front and the back. Like, it's just a marked jump up every time you go from the group in sixth right to fifth. Now, there's a couple that are pushing a little bit to break into it. But even now, it's still just a separation that... I mean, I that... Ex- not- go ahead. That, ex- that experience uh, from a membership standpoint, too, feeds directly into the sheets. Like... I was start, I started studying the judges' sheets after recent conversations and stuff that happened. But like on the visual program, it talks about presence. Well, when you're standing out at UD Arena and finals, and you have forty kids in the ensemble who have all competed in drum corps and done indoor before, like the presence and the confidence that those kids are able to exude. Is just gonna be different. Like you're, you're gonna feel it. There's no way around it. Um, the accuracy of movement. Like I was just highlighting these words. The the range of content. Like that's on the composition thing. Like what you were talking about. For as designers, it doesn't pigeonhole you because your range of content. You can pretty much throw the kitchen sink at them and see what happens. Yep. Yeah, and with like the Formula One thing that. The people know the owners, they know the drivers, they know the like team uh, coaches or whatever. Same thing happens in WGI. I mean, it's not like the judges don't know who the people are at these top groups. And this is where it's a little unfair. You know, we've we've paid our dues over the years to get to the point where you've got some credit in the bank. But if you're at the second regional and your closer's a little jacked or the, the curtains aren't opening right, or a transition's a little bit messy, the response that I get is like, I, I know that you guys will figure that out. I'm not even worried about that. Where another group who's maybe a 12th place group, they might just get railed for that same thing because that judge doesn't have the confidence that they will figure it out. You know, we've had enough years of like last couple of weeks of the season, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's and making sure everything's exactly right where the judge goes, oh yeah, well they... They tend to figure it out, so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that, that that's I think that's valid, though. Um, it is. When a judge knows, like, all right, your track record is proven versus somebody who's, like, maybe a newer ensemble that's just breaking into the game, it would almost be a disservice if they didn't tell them the things that they were thinking. Like, if they assumed that they knew it, like, maybe they assumed that, you guys or MCM know, like that's probably not fair to assume that they know. Yep. Like, oh, you guys will figure it out. And on the tape, they might be like, what, "Figure what out? What are you talking about? Like, what, what's what's he talking about? Figure what out? Like, that information is probably more, I would say, receptive. At least that's how I would take it. But are you saying yeah, the, the judge the... will not knock, like, say X for example, as much in, in, with the number they give you? Like, those they won't dog the number as much. Or are you saying like just like with the feedback they verbally give the staff? Uh, I'm saying that across the board in most pageantry organizations, that if you've got the track record of 
success at the end of the season that they're not going to be as worried about um, a detail in your show that might not be figured out because they're going to trust that you'll figure it out because you've proven over time that you do that. I don't think that's fair necessarily, um, but we've, you know, spent many years of building that trust and that credit up. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, That's what you said the word fair for a second that like to me, because my brain immediately immediately goes to kind of, well, is that really fair? Because if you're still getting a higher score because they're not docking your score as much because they know you'll figure it out three weeks from now, shouldn't they take like dock both groups equally, I guess. Now, granted, X's score is probably still going to be higher than group Y because the playing is probably going to be better, whatever. But I would hope it's a, set up in a way that they would still do the same thing with the numbers and how much they dock you for that, regardless think, of what the group is. Yeah, well, just to be fair, nobody's docking anybody because it's a build-up system. That's right, right. right. Fair, okay, zero, that's a good point. good point. Good point. Yeah, I, yeah. I have a thought I'll share later, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that makes sense too. And I would say most judges, especially because they know everybody like, yeah, it may seem like bias towards one group, but like the relationship that they have with this staff, they probably also have with like 12 other staffs because they Mm -hmm. worked with them or taught them or know half the kids in the ensemble or, oh, that kid marched with me this summer and this kid in this group marched with me that summer. So it's becoming more and more prevalent. I would say across the it board. Um, it is. And you, you, that, that like name recognition that the top groups get, you've earned it for sure. And it's not really any different than if a movie comes out and it's like, Oh, directed by Steven Spielberg and it's starring Scarlett Johansson and Tom Hanks. You're going to be like, yeah, I'm probably going to like that. Yeah. That's bias. You can't, I mean, we ask the judges to not be biased, <laughs> but we've given them 20 years of history to say, yo, when rhythm X comes out, we're going to bring it, and and if you don't acknowledge that, then you're not human. Yeah, and it's not like you guys are going to go into critique and be like, you guys should probably judge us harder. Like, nobody's going to say that. <laughs> no, Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's no, we'll going into critique saying that. So, yeah. it's It takes longevity. It takes consistency, and those things are hard. Yep. <laughs> it's just is what it is. Yeah. Um, I guess too. We've I, I brought up a couple moments or a couple instances of referencing these sheets and stuff. There are some things on here that I found interesting uh, just when looking through them. And you've had a hand in organizing these, uh, at least input. I'm aware of. Yeah. Oh yeah. Things like music composition. It says like variety, continuity, clarity of intent, orchestration, but it says range of content, which I felt like was an interesting choice of words because range of content does not necessarily mean difficulty of content by any means. So is that, I guess, like an intentional, like, we're not really going to talk about difficulty. We're just going to talk about (laughs) skill sets. Well, I I can tell you, I've I've been on the steering committee for a number of years now and had uh, so many conversations about the sheets when we rewrote all of them over the last six or eight years. Each, Each caption got completely rehauled um, or overhauled and uh, the amount of wordsmithing and nuance and like we would fight over one like does this say range of content or does it say range of difficulty and we would go back and forth trying to make sure that every group can get a fair chance to be successful on all of the sheets 
um, and to not uh, that's also the, the reason there's not a, a battery judge and a pit judge right that's been brought up before like why don't we have one judge doing the battery and one judge doing the pit um, but if you do that now you've got two judges and you've got two staff groups that are all trying to get the most points so the battery's never going to want to stop playing and the pit's never going to want to stop playing and now our product is not as good because we're not creating as good of music so every every single word on those seats um caleb and chris and mark do just an incredible job on the admin team but this and mark thurston caleb broth and yeah. chris heston right Rothy, yeah okay um Rothy, they're sorry. they're the best in the business by far um and, well, I guess they're the only ones in the business of WGI, <laughs> but they're they're all just amazing dudes and very very smart, thoughtful. Um, I know that like Mark has been at the at the leadership role since I started in '97. I think was his first year also as like the head of the percussion division, and he is very good at making sure that the kids are first. That it doesn't turn into something that's about the designers, but it's about the kids' experience. Um, Chris Heston has done a wonderful job over the last, whatever, eight or ten years of kind of revamping the judging roster. Um, and, and we can get into judging a little bit if you want to, but I think that he's really put much more qualified people, without to disparage the early judges, because they were there for their own reasons, but really putting qualified people in the seat in as many captions as possible. Um, I, I would put WGI's roster up really, I mean, against anybody. They're they're great. Yeah, I mean, I've said on several occasions, I think anytime I talk about judging, my number one disclaimer is that I do not envy the job that those folks have to do. I get the benefit of watching a group on Rewind or Replay go back, watch it, listen to it, go back, watch it, listen to it. The ability to take a read live and try to get it right and catch everything that the designers want you to catch and reward everything that they want you to reward is very difficult. So every time I talk about judging, I feel like it's through that lens. Like, yeah, yep. super hard job. And the lens the lens of the overall roster and, and especially the philosophy. I mean, the philosophy that on a given night, they can change their mind. A one group might win one night, the, the next group, they might go down two places. I've always been a big fan of that. Um, in the early days, my wife is the color guard director at Centerville and I was the progression director at Centerville. And the two of us, I, I remember, I would be behind the curtain talking to the kids like, okay, you're about to go out there. If you throw down, you could move up three spots. And it happens sometimes. Also, we shit the bed a couple times and went down two or three spots. And she was behind the curtain telling her students, listen, she would say that, but they would never move. Right? That, never. I mean, one place, maybe. But, I mean, I, the number of shows that I've seen that are like world champions that have five or six drops in them, it's like, it, it's been decided. And then I'm involved in the company itself, so I don't want to disparage the color guard community. I, I think that the percussion community specifically has it really figured out about letting that judge judge the show. Um, and I've, I've been the recipient of uh, the anomalies sometimes. Like in 2005, the In Perspective show, 
Uh, Mark Thurston talks about this to me every time he sees me, basically. But we got a 40 in GE. Like, we maxed that out. We were first in visual. And then one of the judges, music judges, had us third, which is, I think, about where we should have been. And then one of them had us ninth. And we lost the show by, like, two-tenths. So we, sh- we should have won the show flat out. And this guy, I won't mention his name. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to f- find out online. But um, I wasn't happy about that. But I would rather have him be able to make that decision as wrong as I think it might have been and have my group get second place than have that guy being in the van on the way to the show going, oh, well, what do you think about Centerville? Yeah, third, about third, don't you think? And then both music judges have a third, and nothing changes. I'd rather have that person have the freedom to make a decision, even if sometimes it it sucks. Yeah, I think the verbiage I hear that's tossed around, as they call it, show of the night. I was going to say. The show show of the night. Um, Mike Jackson said that a lot in 2012 on tour. He, I know, like, he was big with us in 2012 about, obviously, DCI averages the three nights for drums, color guard, all that stuff. I've never been a huge fan of that for the reasons that you just said. Like, if I, the, the group that throws down can jump up two spots in percussion, and if the one that won the last two nights craps the bed... Like, I, I'm torn a little bit about it because it's like, well... Yeah, but the caption awards in that don't really weigh into the placement on finals night. I mean, drum scores impact the the core score, don't they? They're part of it. It's a small fraction, but it's part yeah, of it. Yeah, but who wins that award doesn't matter on finals night. It's, no, I know. I I know. But it's just show of the night, Mike Jackson, another a person in that group, you're talking about that concept. I think I mean, if you're going to average the three nights, then you should average the whole season. Ooh, interesting. I also don't think you should average the three nights. So There you go. <laughs> I there like the three-night average, personally. To me, it feels more like a, an NBA Finals slash MLB World Series. Like, but Would you do that at, at WGI, though? Like, if that's the case, where the Mex doesn't get second place on Finals night, we get third. But th- that would be more like who won the music caption over all three nights. Overall music award. Yeah. Over, like, yeah. I feel well, like that's different. There's a reason we don't give those as well. Yeah. Like, they're all, they're all included in the overall score. And that's yeah. what that's what it should be. It's like so you you uh, think you, know, you think DCI should get rid of the caption? Uh, no, not necessarily. <laughs> I just don't think WGI should add them. Fair. I think that, no. I agree beats. with I agree with that. No, yeah. I don't want. Yeah, I don't want WGI. I've never been a fan of the average. For DCI. I feel like then yeah yeah I don't, overall but. best visual. Ugh, I don't know. Weird. Interesting. Um. So. We talked about the range of content, the sheets, this, that, the judging. What, I guess that would transition me into like the percussion advisory board where the magic happens, quote unquote. Um, people make rule proposals. People make, I guess, suggestions for procedural changes, things like that. What is the, the percussion advisory board like? I know it happens every year after WGI, right? It does. Um, yeah, we've had a little bit of a hiatus from the PAB. Um, concurrently, at the same weekend, there's a color guard advisory board, percussion advisory board, and winds advisory board. Um, it's made up of the top, the finalists in world class for all of the classes, and then the top five for all the rest of the classes for open and A, independent, and scholastic. 
So, like color guards, they would have a total of 50 potential advisory board members, 15 from both worlds, five open, open, five AA. Percussion would have uh, a feeling of 75 if the concert classes were as filled out as the rest of the classes, um, but usually it ends up being around 68, something like that. Um, and yeah, you can you can make a proposal, you can make a rules or a policy. Uh, proposal to the board, um, to the advisory board. If you're there, it helps, right? But you don't have to be there to make a proposal. Um, but the thing that we've done the last couple of years, or in 18 and 19, that really helped was that you have to get a second from the room, from somebody in the room. So if your proposal is like, you know, Mike, says any any group that has Fantini in their name is going to get a 95 no matter what. I'd like to propose that rule. And everybody's like, nope, that's stupid. So we it just sits there and Mark says, does anybody second it? And Mike sits there like this because he's mad because he wants his 95. <laughs> but nobody seconds it. It's gone. We don't even talk about it the rest of the weekend. If somebody else says, yeah, I think we could go for that Fantini rule. Let's try it. Then we will bring it on the docket for the next day, and we talk about that rule proposal. Um, the, the thing that we're trying to eliminate is competitive baggage, which is like 80% of what the proposals are. You know, like if I, if I put a proposal in and said, you know, anytime the music score on finals night is an odd number, it, it moves up, it bumps up to the next odd number instead of even number. So we would instead of fourth or third. I, I think that's a good rule proposal. And that would be just such horseshits. It's so obviously my group that I want mm -hmm. to get more points. You'd be surprised, though, how many proposals are so blatantly self-serving. So we try to get rid of all those. Um, and then age out rule comes up. 4.2.1 comes up. Whether we can trigger. What's 4.2.1? Is that the age out rule? Dude, you gotta read the rule book, Evan. Well, I I, <laughs> I do need to read the rule book. You're right. Um, I I saw a funny. I saw somebody Facebook status like four point two point one. I was like, what's this? And then I forgot to look it up. That's the triggering. Like, do I have to make one word, or do I have to cut up the oh, word, okay, or okay, can okay. I just hit play and play a song? And that one's come up quite a bit uh, over the years. So, um, and then we do the rule proposals. Um, then there's election from. From the advisory board, there's two things that happen from that. There's a steering committee, um, which is the admin team. So Chris, Caleb, and Mark. There's right currently there's three judge reps. I think we're going to move it to four now since we've added effect visual over the last couple of years. Um, so those representatives are voted on by the judges at the judges meeting. Um, so like right now, I know that like Austin Green's on there, Omar's on there. Um, but we have representation from the judges. And then there's five directors or uh, activity representatives. Um, and I think right now it's me, Vega, Mapes, uh, Tom Unk, and who's the other one? I don't know. There's five of us. Um, maybe it's Keshaw. Anyway, the five directors, four judges, three or four judges, and then the admin. That makes up what's called the steering committee. They're, one of their biggest tasks during the year is to work on reclassification. 
So we have a huge spreadsheet that shows a group, okay, they're in Scholastic A right now. They're being reviewed to be in Scholastic Open, and it has all of our names, and it has uh, a vote. And if you get – usually it's, you have to get seven votes or more. Like you have to get a, a majority um, of the amount of people that are on it. And if everybody says that they're misclassified, then they go into the next class automatically. Um, that's, sorry, that's Joe Avery. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's, a you know, obviously a lot of misconception goes into being promoted or bumped, which we call that being reclassified. Um, because the reason that you're being moved from open to world is that you're doing world-class skill sets and you should have been in world in the first place. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'm so excited we got promoted. It's like, no, your director just didn't put you in the right class in the first place. <laughs> so it's not. that's why we don't make a big deal about it. It's not a promotion. It's just putting you in the right group so that your feedback from the judges is catered toward world-class skill sets or intermediate skill sets or beginner basic skill sets, um, and that your students are getting the feedback from the judging community on on the same sets that they should be competing with their competitors. You're trying to be in AAA, but you should be at the show. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and there's some groups, you know, like there was 29 groups this year in Independent World, and we did reclassify, I think, two of them this year into that classification. Um, one of them did pretty well. One of them uh, didn't score as high. They were, I think they might have been last. But they were, but 29th in world class is still. You're saying this is a world class group. They're doing world class skills, and we're gonna judge them on the world class sheet. There's no way that they should be doing all that in open class, beating up on people. Yeah, I, well, I saw both of those groups, and I sent videos of them, and I was like, this is not an open group. Um, yeah. And a lot of people think like, well, if we put them in world, then are they gonna be able to beat Mystique? Well, no, maybe not. But that doesn't people we call it the paradigm of the class, it's usually the middle of the class. Like, are they going to be competitive somewhere in the middle? Are they doing the skill sets of the people in the middle of the class? And it doesn't matter. Like, well, if we move up into world, we're not going to win. Well, probably that's true, but you're going to be competing against people that are doing the same skill sets as you. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Plus, like you said, in Mike and I actually just did a reaction video earlier this evening where we went back and watched all the medalists from open class independent mm -hmm. um, gold, silver, bronze and nothing against like, obviously I started an open class. I love open class, but you can just tell like when you watch yep. it, you're like, yeah, this is, it's just not, there's a reason there's a separation. So <laughs> it is what it is that I think that's why the activity exists. Like there's an Avenue for anyone who wants to start a new group to jump in and you will have an appropriate competition level for where you need to be. So I totally yep, get yep. it. You brought this up a second ago in passing a little bit, but I want to touch on it if you're open to it. Why is there an age out in percussion, but not in, but not an age out in color guard? What's the logic behind that? Cause I know it's kind of controversial. I've talked to a lot of people that, are against the age out. I've talked to a lot of people that think it's a great thing. What's yep. the what's the reasoning? Well, the the chicken or the egg also needs to be examined a little bit. Um, Color Guard used to have an age out, and they chose to get rid of it. 
Um, at the time, my, my opinion is that the class was struggling a little bit. The numbers were dwindling. Um, they, a lot of the push was to make sure the international groups could compete. Um, and they traditionally in their cultures have overage kids or overage members. Um, and the Collier Arts chose to take the age out away. Um, now they've kind of waffled back and forth on that where it was gone for world class and then now it's like 25 for open or like I'm not sure even what it is because they, they change their rules all the time um, and percussion has always had the same one since day one it, we started and we made it what the color guard one was um, at one point they changed it we decided we didn't want to change it we didn't have a reason to change it and if you look, our numbers certainly aren't struggling. I mean, 29 independent world groups, all under the age of, well, this year, 24. But yeah. um, I, I, my biggest thing, uh, and I'm, I'm pro keeping the rule, right, that I am open to talking about it and listening to people's opinions. I think some of the other opinions are absolutely valid. Um, my biggest thing is that I want teachers. Like it, like Rhythmex is snare line this year. If if we didn't have an age out rule next year, that whole snare line is going to come back, right? And you don't get a year like um, whatever Stand by Me, where we had the age out eight age outs the year before. Now all of a sudden, T Gas and Dan Shack and Travis they don't move over from the East Coast and get a spot in Rhythmex because all those same guys are still in the line. What, what's Dan Shack at that point? Like, is he as famous as he is now? Is he running Carolina Crown's battery? Who knows? Maybe, probably not, right? That, that yeah. foot in the door for those kids based on age outs happening is a real thing. Um, and then the other thing, like I use my wife as an example a lot, it'll be on a weekend, uh, fall season, no problem, full staff, three, three flag tech, weapon tech, dance person. We get into the winter and it's February and all of a sudden a group in the area has got three holes to fill and her staff all fills those holes. And now she's at a regional all by herself with no staff. And if those kids had to age out, they wouldn't do that. So I, I feel pretty strongly about that. There's a lot of arguments about like older students that are 28, 29 being with 18 year olds. I think that exists even now. I mean, if somebody's 22 or 23, and you've got a 17-year-old in your group, you know, I think, unfortunately, bad things can happen in any kind of a situation. Um, but I don't think that a 29-year-old, they can't, I mean, I know that my tech staff, who's in their 30s, they're not marching to the drill that I write, right? They might still have the best hands, but they can't handle it physically. No. And I don't want no them way. to. No Evan way. and I have right? talked about um, that. I, I would have, I mean, I see both sides of it too. I'm more on the side of the age out is a good thing for the reasons you pointed out, illuminating, you know, T gas, Travis, Dan, do they get to where they got to if they didn't get to move over to rhythm X? I've always looked at it as if you don't have an age out, you're going to just delay and push back when you get to move to the top level. Now percussion, I think people are going to age themselves out. I mean, there is an age out and I aged myself out. I could have marched rhythm X, or audition for Rhythm X in 13 and 14. I just, because of life and everything, I chose not to. I think that people still, huh? That was a mess. Oh, dude. A <laughs> dude, I, if I, 
It was so funny that I called Rhythm X winning in 2013 in January. There was a video in the alumni group posted from like one of the first like holiday camp or whatever. And I sent the link to Evan and I said, this looks way cooler than a lot of the shit we did the last two years. I think They're my exact win. quote was, you effed up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it is what it is, you know. You're, anyway, you're, yeah, yeah, so like I think that that that's a pretty good point though too about the teachers because ultimately too that just delays the timeline of everything. Uh, I mean, yeah. I was already. I have married. another theory if you want to hear it. We do. Yeah, okay. That's what just we're about. Yeah, we'll we'll jump into it. But I mean, I was already married my age out year with the Max marching indoor. But I so that kind of jumps back too to the point. It it just moves the the delay back to everything like your teachers don't start teaching as well then your teachers don't start designing as early then your designers don't start judging as early and then all of a sudden everybody's complaining well the the judges don't design and the designers don't judge and nobody's talking about the judges knows what they're doing so like let's say all right well what do you want you want people that are fresh judge you want people that are fresh designing what do you want yep yeah i've had this discussion with a couple of the pro get rid of the rule people, the other side of the aisle. Um, and I, I have a solution. I'm not going to propose it cause I don't necessarily want it, but if they wanted the free solution, I think one of the, one of the things that is difficult is that a student who's 19 to 22, like those four years that you have after you graduate from high school, before you age out, sometimes it's four years, sometimes it's five years, depending Sometimes it's only three years if you're really old in high school. If you are a music student or in the military, uh, I think that you should be able to defer your years. So, because a lot of the kids in Rhythm X, like if you're a, a full-time music student and you're marching drum corps and you're trying to march Rhythm X, financially it's super taxing. Um, and I think that there'd be some sort of compromise. Like let's say you're 19, you're a full-time music student, I've got four years of quali- qualifications to market Rhythm X. I'm going to defer this one and this one. And so my freshman and sophomore year, I don't march Rhythm X. That means I would be able to march my junior and senior year and then the next two years after it if I wanted to. And then during those two years, I've graduated from college. I might have a job. I might be, have enough money to pay for all my dues and the person next to me's dues. Um, and then you're still you're never going to get somebody that's more than like 26. True. Right. Which true. is still kind of reasonable. You know what I mean? It's like a red shirt rule. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And sports. it might, it might take some of the taxing nature of the finances off some of these kids as well. So yeah, that's, cause, that's my solution for the other side of the aisle, but I'm not going to propose it. I mean, I, I know a <laughs> firsthand experience like that. Like I know a girl right now who marched indoor and she, she goes to a college around here and she pays for her schooling and she pays for her indoor and she's like trying to scrounge up money to march drum corps. And it's just like in it's a matter a of in a matter of one calendar year, you're asking her to come up with forty three hundred dollars to her drum corps and fifteen hundred dollars for indoor. It's a lot of freaking money for a kid. Yeah. Yep. So I I understand like like, well, I want to have the experiences and I don't see DCI changing their rule anytime soon, which is fine. But, yeah, I feel like that's a compromise. Yeah, and I think I'm sure it'll come up this year, I, I, especially with the fact that we had the two extra age-out years. Um, but uh, but Oh, I know it's already been group, submitted. Yeah. 
But if you look at a group like Broken City, I know that they had a ton of, they, you know, they call them super vets that would have aged out in 2020, didn't age out. They're all 24. They're all super mature and super strong and have, you know, great presence. And, and I think that's great. I think that's cool. Do we really want that same exact battery to come back for the next four years and have no other student get the opportunity to march in Broken City snare line? Personally, I don't think so. I think it was cool that it got to happen this year. Um, but I don't know. I've, I've just had too many students that have gotten the opportunity to march in places because the age out rule exists. No, I agree with you. I have, I've, all, I've never really been on the side of the fence of get rid of it. I think it's a good thing that it's there. I think it's a good breaking point in life. Usually that age lines up with college if you chose to go to college or it's like four years after high school. I think it's a, I've always, I've never really had a problem with it. I never would have yeah, been a center of the people, mix if there was an age out rule. That's true. That's a fact. That's a fact. And, and most of the people, I, that wasn't a slam, Evan. But there was no, no, that's of, not a slam. <laughs> a lot, I, of, I, lot of talent. I do not take it as a slam. I probably would have never made Rhythm the X people, if there was an age out rule. Um, most of the people that are in the camp of wanting to get rid of it, and this is a generalization, but most of them are trying to get a better car. Right? They're, they're trying to say, well, how are we going to compete against Rhythm X when they've got a better car than we do? Well, if we had 24 and 25-year-olds, Maybe we'd be, we maybe our car would be as good as theirs. Yeah, and if I we can keep the same group of people. Water. Yeah, if we can hey, keep yeah, the well, same battery three years in a row, yeah, we'll compete eventually. But all the top groups would be doing the same thing. That's true. With more talent. But will their talent, will the groups below the top five catch up if that same battery sticks around for three or four years? I mean, we talked no. about that threshold thing, man. I mean, no, because I know what I stopped doing after I age out and I stopped drumming. So. My chops went down. I gave a lot of private lessons, and my fundamentals got way better. <laughs> my knees went down, I'll tell you that. That's true. I could not, probably by about, and Tim's right about the physical side of it, like probably by about 24, 25, 26, and I actually started working out more after I was done with the indoor and drum corps and all that stuff, and I still, like, I think I'm 31 now, and even at 27, I was like, I couldn't put a drum on and do half the stuff I did five years ago now maybe if i had kept doing it every year and not stopped who knows but i think i couldn't do yeah. the choreography they do now That's no i could not at all nope but yeah could you... so it'll come up at the pab for sure and, and then hopefully it'll have a good discussion i know that last time it came up it was not handled super great kind of got yeah. the conversation got shut down um and I, I hope that doesn't happen this year i think that everybody in the room there happens to be a number of bigger uh, personalities in the room that are always that are very pro keep the rule and have a tendency to be able to just stand up, say three or four sentences, sit down and everybody's like, yep, keep the rule. Hmm. Next next conversation. Yeah, I think ultimately that is the worst thing that could happen yep. in yep. any any activity is to like just immediately shut down conversation. I mean, there's so many right. aspects of culture. There's so many aspects of television and media where you just see that that is an extreme negative. It's like, well, yep. let's hear this person out and have a rational conversation. If somebody doesn't want to change their mind, fine. That's on them. They don't have to change their mind. But yep. to hear someone out is an extremely valuable skill set and people aren't always going to be right. I'm not always right. I say things that are completely wrong sometimes. Uh, 
I'll completely own it every time. Somebody's like, hey, that's not right. I know on occasion uh, I've gotten text messages from people after I do a podcast like, hey, just to let you know, like, what you said about this is actually blah, 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 blah. And then I'll come on the next podcast and be like, well, I got some more information, so I'm going to update my info. <laughs> but, yeah, to, to have the conversation is great. You don't have to accept it. People don't have to agree with it. But to shut people down is uh, pretty whack. Yeah, that's one one thing that Mark Thurston is really good at because there's a lot of people that are in that room that, like I said, this is my 25th PAB um, that I think the comment that got said last time when the age out thing came up was like, oh, God, here we go again. And it was from people that had been in the room and they've heard the discussions, you know, through the years. And some, some of the discussions, yeah, they do get a little bit repetitive if you've been in that room for years and years and years. But Mark is really good at letting anybody talk that has an opinion and that the proposals on the table, they get to defend their proposal, um, whether they're a first year person or a, a you know top designer as it will, would, would go. <laughs> Love it. Oh, man. Nice. Well, on that note. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, it's been about an hour and 21 minutes. Time flies when you're having fun. I don't, Evan, do you yeah. have anything else? I mean, I'm trying, I think we hit most of the stuff that we had kind of thrown in our text group that we wanted to touch I'll on. I'll just, uh, I'll open the, the floor if Tim has anything he wants to, to throw out. Um, yeah, we've covered a lot of topics. Uh, I think that I'd like to just offer myself up to anybody that's listening to this podcast. If you're ever, if you're ever not sure about something, you've got a question about the activity, what happens behind the scenes. Um, I know I alluded earlier that I'm, I'm really involved in the corporate side of the company. Um, and I, I just like people to be informed. So when I hear people talking on podcasts or whatever and having the wrong information, uh, if you're ever not sure, just hit me up, shoot me a text, timfairbanksatme.com. I'm not going to put my phone number on here, but hit me up on Facebook or something. But yeah, like I said, I think that guys like you that are fighting the good fight and, and being able to ch just talk like humans about our activity, I think is a really cool thing. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, I greatly appreciate it. And I've always uh, witnessed Tim firsthand over the years just offering up advice to, to anybody, whether it's about just these WGI as an organization or WGI is like how to design your shows or like, hey, we'd love to pick your brain I've always seen you just offer up your services and willingness to to share the love. And this is kind of a tribal activity where we share knowledge through the years. And yeah, I really appreciate the time, man. Yeah, thank you very much. Yep. So let's close this out. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. Again, check out LoneStarPercussion.com. Discount code aged out. Save yourself some money. Check out the uh, YouTube channel if you're on podcast services or vice versa. If you're on YouTube, check out the podcast services. Facebook on Facebook and Instagram for any updates. Uh, you don't want to miss that stuff. We're just going to keep making content, and we'll see everybody in the next one. Peace.